I'm Carol Joy Side, and welcome to the Homeschool Made Simple podcast. You're listening to episode 57. This is a podcast to help you homeschool simply, inexpensively, and enjoyably. Well, this afternoon, I have the rare privilege of sitting with my friend Vidal Arroyo, who is coming uh, to us via Zoom from Oxford, England. And I am just so excited to be with Vidal. Welcome, Vidal. Welcome. Thank you so much, Carol, for having me on. Well, Vidal and his family and I um, have been working together for quite a, quite a while now. But Vidal has an interesting story, and I just want him to share it with us. So Vidal, when did you start homeschooling? And, and bring us kind of through the journey of your academic childhood and now into adulthood. Yeah, great question. So I think um, it's probably best for me, honestly, to start with, um, it's actually from kindergarten, because I think that'll sort of put in context um, the whole academic journey. So um, I actually, you know, basically when I was, I don't remember the exact age it was, but about four or five, um, you know, I think a lot of kids start off with three school and that was sort of where my mom started me often. Um, but for whatever reason, I think, I think honestly, because I was the first in my family and I was kind of the only child at that time, um, my mom put a lot of attention to me and really sped me up. So I was able to skip preschool and jump right into kindergarten. Um, and that was sort of the, you know, standard path, kindergarten, first grade, second grade, third grade, et cetera. Um, and school was an interesting experience for me because, uh, you know, my mom, because I was able to skip preschool, you know, she said that she, you know, thought I was bright. I think I was, obviously every parent thinks that their kid is bright, and my mom was no exception. Um, but I actually did struggle in school a bit because I was, I would get quite distracted. I was um, sort of, you know, kind of daydream during class. Like I kind of just, you know, start looking at the wall and wonder what's going on the wall instead of the teacher um, and that sort of thing. And so a lot of, uh, you know, you know, I think in the second grade, I actually remember this in, in particular one, um, my second grade teacher actually wrote a note home um, to my mom, basically describing this issue. Um, so a lot of, you know, teachers didn't really take note of, um, I guess, any academic potential because I was not, uh, you know, putting myself in a situation to, to demonstrate I even up with attention. Um, but that actually changed in the fourth grade when basically I was um, obviously in a fourth grade class. And for whatever reason, the teacher that um, I was taking a class with thought that maybe the reason I was daydreaming was because I was sort of not being challenged by the classes I was in. And so she actually um, signed me up to take what's called the GATE test, which stands for Gifted gifted and Talented. And talented education. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm trying to think what the E stands for, maybe education. Yeah. Um, and yeah, so anyways, um, I was able to take the test. I actually, I think, missed the sort of the cutoff for what they would sort of pass someone into GATE by you know, two or three questions or something like that. But for whatever reason, my, my teacher really thought that um, that I still should have been in the program. And so she basically convinced the school district that like I should go into it. And that honestly was a very life-changing experience for me because I think um, I was very fortunate to be in classes where, you know, you're sort of uh, told and taught, you know, that, that you had academic potential, that you were smart and that sort of thing. And honestly, I think every kid has that in them, but, and, and I think that's why it's really, you know, tough with the school system that, um, you know, sometimes when we tell some kids they're smart and some kids they're not, like it's really a great injustice, but for whatever reason, I found myself on the lucky side of that coin. And so, um, you know, continued through middle school and high school and 
Um, this is a pretty similar trend. I still was not very interested in my courses, even though I was in these gate courses. I, I didn't really have an impetus for, you know, really working hard in school um, or anything like that. And, um, you know, basically entering high school, uh, I still didn't really know what I wanted to do with my life. My grandpa's a musician, so I thought I wanted to do something in music, but I didn't think that college was required, so that wasn't on my radar at all. Um, and it was only actually through, um, through wrestling that I started to change my mind about this. So basically for some other context, um, in middle school, I was a uh, sort of not only lazy academically, I was sort of lazy in all areas of my life, including <laughs> that of physical activity. So I was quite a chunker entering uh, high school. So uh, I basically was kind of figure out like, you know, okay, what, what can I do, um, you know, to lose some weight? And, you know, since we're on a podcast, no one can sort of tell this, but I'm uh, on the shorter side. So, you know, athletically, like basketball is not really the greatest sport. Football, you know, I won't be able to get as big. So, you know, kind of very limited. And, and wrestling was actually a great sport because wrestling is a weight class sport. And I was like, okay, well, um, I'm going to be, you know, competing against other small guys. I'll be all right. So yeah. uh, I joined the wrestling team my first year in wrestling. I actually, so I came in at 160 pounds around 5'4. Um, and over the course of a year, I lost 37 pounds. So I wow. actually went away. Yeah, I really went full force with it. And wrestling for me actually sort of um, killed that lazy part of me. Like it went completely away because it actually taught me like, oh, if you want to be good at the sport, uh, you got to work hard. If you want to lose weight, you got to work hard. Um, and I started to carry that into school. And I actually started to actually allow myself to dream a little bit, you know, thinking more beyond just being a musician, sort of following the path that I thought I was going to do for my entire life. And um, through, so then I actually started becoming interested in some classes in my high school. And in particular, I became interested in chemistry in my sophomore year of high school. And then my junior year of high school, I actually took an anatomy class. So it was kind of like a science elective I could take. And yeah. I was absolutely enamored by sort of the, the um, just the complexity and beauty of the human body. And um, I knew that I wanted to do something with my life that was kind of working you know, with health or, you know, fitness or sports medicine, that sort of thing. So um, because I was an athlete and a student athlete, all my other friends, I sort of asked them like, hey, you know what, what can I do to, uh, you know, to sort of go in that realm? And all my friends were going to physical therapy. So I thought, okay, I need to go into physical therapy. Yeah. So um, that was sort of what I was gearing towards, you know, towards the end of high school. Um, and, you know, with the wrestling, it was interesting because uh, I, so I went to a, a, a public high school and I really loved wrestling. Um, I knew that I didn't want to wrestle in college because I, I knew that I wasn't like super talented and, and wouldn't be able to get a huge scholarship for it, but I still just loved the sport and I wanted to take it as far as I could. And so actually my junior year of high school, I was, um, I started wrestling for a club team out in, uh, in Santa Ana, California, um, which is about uh, 30 minutes away from where I was living at the time, which was around French Santa Margarita, California. Yeah. And um, basically this club team was associated with Calvary Chapel High School, which was one of the best wrestling programs in Southern California. Yeah. Um, and I got to know the coaches there and I just really vibe with the team and with the people. I just felt like, I um, mean, you know, also since I'm a Christian, like, you know, a lot of the guys were sort of similarly minded and versus being in a public high school. And so um, basically after my junior of high school, I kind of just had a crazy idea. And I was like, Hey mom and dad, like I, uh, I don't think I want to go back to, to Sorrow, which is where my public high school is. I don't think I want to go back to Sorrow next year. I want to sort of wrestle for this other team and transfer schools, um, which is hard because, you know, I built this whole social 
um, kind of support system at uh, Tesoro. Like I didn't really know anybody at, um, at Calvary Chapel and be hopping into a completely new program. And the other thing is that it's a private school, so finances were a huge issue. So um, basically what we decided to do was we just decided to, um, to homeschool instead. So Calvary Chapel, they had what was called a private school program where you could basically homeschool under the Calvary Chapel system. And it was much cheaper than the private school. It also allowed me to um, actually do my schooling from home since we were living 30 minutes away and only have to deal with commutes to and from practices. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's, it's kind of just history from there, you know, from there I was able to homeschool and, and et cetera, et cetera, which we we'll probably talk about later, but that's what led to homeschooling was, yeah. was that whole path and, and wrestling. Interesting. So you started wrestling for Calvary and then what, how, how did you do school? What did that look like? Yeah, so, you know, again, we did school from, um, again, from home. For me, it was basically, so I'm trying to remember what my high school schedule was, but we had practice from about, I think, 4 to 6 p.m., and actually, since I was homeschooled, um, my coach, actually, we had a, we had another, there's another family that had kids that were homeschooled that were wrestling through Calvary um, on the club team, and basically, he had this idea of having sort of an extra homeschool practice uh, just to get us that much better, you know, we're kind of on, like, the accelerator track. Uh, for getting better at wrestling and so um basically I uh you know I was doing that so I was training about four hours a day wrestling um Monday Monday through Friday which was a big commitment and um you know I think if I remember correctly I think my first practice was from like 10 to 2 and then my second practice was from like not not, not 10 to 2 10 to 12 or or 9 to 11 or something like that and then the second one was from about five to seven, if I remember correctly, or six to eight. Um, so basically what I was doing is in between that, I was studying. So I was studying on the car ride to practice or to, you know, sort of Calvary, the car ride from practice. My mom would usually drive me in the morning. My dad would usually drive me in the, you know, at night after practice, just with yeah. their schedules. Um, and in between, you know, I would just bring all my study materials to Calvary and I would be studying, you know, in that window, get a little lunch, maybe take a little nap or something like that. Um, but as far as the curriculum goes, it was um, completely literature based. So, you know, for English, I was reading, uh, you know, John Steinbeck and Charles Dickens for history. I remember the exact history books, but it was not a textbook. It was like a sort of a more um, uh, a more presentable version of like U.S. history and, yes. and sort of describing sort of the architecture of, of sort of the Constitution and that sort of thing. Um, and for the sciences, I, so for my science class, I actually took the anatomy um, a bit further. And I actually, that year, decided to study and get certified as a personal trainer, which I did. So <laughs> it's, it's, I basically took the anatomy and sort of did like anatomy 2.0 and became a personal trainer. Um, and then um, with, uh, with math, because that was sort of something else I could do, I basically um, decided to do statistics. And um, you know, we didn't really have a statistics text, but we didn't really know what to do. So what I just decided to do is just go to the library and see what they had. And they did have this nice, like, kind of self-taught statistics textbook you could go through. So that's basically what I did. I picked this up and it was, I mean, it wasn't like a graduate level thing. It was like, a, you know, it was made for high school students. So I was able to sort of do that. Um, and those were basically my four courses. I may have done something else beyond that, but those were basically the, the sort of the meat and potatoes of what I was studying. That's amazing. So you were inventing your own education as a high school student, which how, how did that, you know, how is that type of methodology um, shaped your destiny and your future? You know, <laughs> how it shaped his destiny and future. So, I mean, there's a lot of serendipity involved in this, but I will say that that ability to, you know, obviously within English, like, you know, 
if I was to have my English study time, I need to be reading books, but like be able to decide what books I wanted to read. That yeah. was really cool. I mean, that freedom. And I think for me, like during my senior year of high school, I really fell in love with John Steinbeck's writing. I think also because I'm from California and just the way that he sort of portrayed the landscape, the totally. way he portrayed the culture. It was, um, it was very beautiful. And I, you know, really fell in love with his writing. History, I had a little less freedom, but, you know, still like the books I really enjoyed and, um, you know, beyond, I was able to sort of read beyond them as well. Um, I think where I felt like I had the most freedom was actually in the math thing. Because again, um, for some context, because I was on this accelerated course, I had taken the first half of calculus my junior year of high school um, at, a, yeah. at the public high school. <laughs> um, and that was like the only course that I did like decent at. Um, you know, I think that the only course I got an A and the rest of them I was sort of getting Bs and um, yeah, around Bs. But um, yeah, you know, that was, I knew that I, I liked math and I just, um, I guess I just wanted something different. That was the only reason I chose this was just because I was like, I want something different. I did calculus. I don't know. I think also because I knew I was going to be transitioning from a public school to a homeschooling. I was afraid that if I try to do calculus again, I would just be going over a lot of the same things yeah. because I didn't know the overlap. Yeah. So I decided, okay, let me do something completely different. So I know for sure I'm learning something new. Um, and that's where the statistics came in. And it's really funny because, um, you know, at the time I didn't really think much of it. Like, okay, I'm just taking statistics school. We're going to college now. Um, and, and, and for context, I um, continued my studies at uh, Chapman University, which is a, a, a liberal arts school um, in Orange County. Um, but it's funny because uh, for context now in Oxford, I'm actually doing a graduate degree in statistics. So oh. I think that, you know, what, what really that high school statistics course did is it birthed this sort of intuition about statistics, about sort of the nature of probability and sort of those like mathematical principles, um, which served me really well after my sophomore year of college when I was working basically in a cancer data science lab out in Texas. And that led me to then study more math and computer science back at college after that, which having the statistics intuition helped transition to that. Um, and yeah, now I'm, you know, as a graduate student at Oxford, I'm basically applying like um, some really nifty um, data uh, integration techniques that are using some really fancy um, statistical uh, machine learning methods, which is basically like a type of artificial intelligence. Yeah. Um, and so I've really kind of taken it, that thread very far now. Um, but yeah, it all started for me just saying, yeah, you know, I just want to do something a little different. And I have the freedom, you know, to say, okay, I don't want to study calculus. I want to study statistics and do something different. That is so, yeah, that's homeschooled its very best. It really is. And so Vidal, how, so now you, you want a Rhodes scholarship. I mean, you're more likely to be struck by a meteorite than win a Rhodes scholarship. It is. Oh, don't tell me that. I don't want to get hit by a meteorite. <laughs> <laughs> but it is such a huge honor and a, and a compliment to your academic and your character as well. It's not just an academic selection. You're a lot of smart people, but the Unabomber was smart. So being a Rhodes Scholar really, um, what, what are the criteria for being selected as a Rhodes Scholar? Would you, how would you describe it? You know, um, so they have like a formal, uh, you know, that criteria on their website. As a Rhodes Scholar, I should probably know these criteria, but I don't. I'm pretty <laughs> sure I knew them when I was interviewed, but I think I've long forgotten. You know, I think, I think the main, um, you know, sort of the main mantra of the Rhodes Scholarship is, is fighting the world's fight, which um, for me, uh, I think it really means like, you know, using whatever talents, gifts, passions that you have, opportunities uh, to address uh, 
you know, suffering in the world. Um, you know, really, I think, I think that sort of humanitarian cause is at the core of the Rhodes Scholarship. Mm. And when selecting scholars, I think what they're really looking for are people who have the, um, have the, the talent, the passion, and the character and ultimately the calling to address those things. Mm -hmm. And um, I think that's honestly the only commonality I can sort of pin on all of the people that I have the fortune of calling friends through the scholarship that I've been able to meet. Um, because I mean, <laughs> there's just so many, there's just such a diversity and delusion, you know? Yeah. Um, but I think that's really the core of it is, is the looking for, for, for good people that, and I think also the reason I think that that character phone is really huge is because, you know, the Rose Scholarship is a huge privilege. You know, even for me, I don't think I'll ever feel like I can ever earn it. I don't think anybody should ever feel like that. Cause as you said, it's just the, the rarity of getting an opportunity like that, giving that distinction is, is, um, is, you know, beyond me. So, you know, that character phone is really huge because, you know, I think with, with great, sort of opportunity become like comes great responsibility and you know yeah. someone has that privilege they have to make sure that they use it in a way that is is ultimately to the benefit of others so yeah. um but yeah that that's what I would pinpoint is really that that sort of humanitarian cause is, is what is the core of the scholarship and when we've chatted previously you talk a lot about your faith and how you see that that Christ has really kind of given you this platform and this favor and it, it, talk a little bit about that yeah, I mean, I can, I should probably just walk through how I got the scholarship because it was, yeah, I, I think, a, as a common theme here, um, there's a lot of serendipity involved in it. But ultimately, I don't think it's serendipity. I think it's God's hand on my life and um, sort of God, uh, you know, just deciding to do uh, crazy things with someone that uh, probably shouldn't be in these spaces, but that's, <laughs> that's another conversation. <laughs> but basically, um, you know, in college, and maybe I can pick up a thread of what I did once I came into college wanting to become a physical therapist. So sure. I came into college wanting to become a physical therapist. And, uh, you know, basically, long story short, two things happened in my first two years of college. One, I fell in love with molecular biology. I realized that anatomy was cool, but anatomy was only cool because there were tinier things happening <laughs> that sort of led to that anatomy. And I thought that was crazy. Um, the second thing is that I actually had... Um, a mentor of mine passed away from a stage four stomach cancer at 37 mm -hmm. years old. Mm -hmm. And that changed me. Um, you know, I, I saw this and this was basically for some context, this was my first research mentor chaplain. So he was the first person that encouraged me and gave me the freedom to sort of pursue intellectual discovery. Um, not only in terms of like, you know, being able to read someone else's textbook, but actually be able to be the first person to figure out something um, and learn something, which is like a whole nother level. And that's what you get to do as a researcher. Um, so yeah, he, he passed away from this, from this cancer, was diagnosed with it when I was coming in my second year of college and passed away within a year. And, you know, basically I experienced just this immense sense of frustration of not being able to do anything for him. You know, I, I was not on the path to become a doctor or a scientist. Um, but because I, I had that frustration, I really felt like I had to do something about it. And I, I you know, it was, it was funny because, you know, I felt like I was the least likely person to do it, you know, for some context, like, you know, um, I was a train commuter in college. Like I was, I was taking the train two hours a day, you know, because of finances to go to yeah. university. And, yeah. um, you know, I was a frustration college student. I wasn't the hottest student in, in high school. I was still like trying to figure out even how to study and that sort of thing. And I just felt like, 
it was very, um, like, I didn't feel like the right person for the job, you know, like, I didn't come from a long line of physicians and scientists, you know, that was just not in my cards, at least so I thought, but, you know, I think, again, when, when there's, um, when, when you feel a calling on your life, like, at some point, you have to stop running away from it, and you just have to accept it, and ultimately, for me, it was, it was God panning that out and saying, like, you know, I know this is not what, um, you sort of want to do with your life that you don't think you're sort of worthy of this calling, but I need you to go into this. And I think in part, maybe that's why he, he allowed me to have that opportunity to sort of pursue that direction because he knew that, um, I mean, I'm still working out this with him on a daily basis, but like, you know, I, I think coming from that background, you just don't take things for granted. And I think mm. it's that for me, the drive to become a researcher wasn't because I was curious in science. It wasn't because um, you know, I was pushing that direction is because I, I, I saw suffering, um, in one of its darkest forms and I wanted to do something about it. That and is so, yeah, go ahead. You know, basically following that line of serendipity, um, you know, after my professor, so my professor, he left the university in October to sort of continue undergoing treatment. Um, and during that time I was not working in this lab anymore and sort of figuring out, you know, what could I do instead? Um, my molecular biology professor that sort of got me really fascinated in, in sort of molecular biology, she actually encouraged me to apply for what are called um, RUs, they're um, research experiences for undergraduates, and they're the summer basically internships at universities where they fund students to work in the lab um, and be able to do research. And, um, you know, these are actually very, very competitive programs, usually some of the top places in, in sort of the United States that fund these things. Um, but my professor thought that uh, I should still apply for them. Um, and usually you get these things after, once you're a junior in college, after you're a junior in college, like getting them as a sophomore is very rare. Um, but I took her advice and I said, you know, okay, yeah, this is, you know, I don't have any, I don't have anything else. Like I don't have a plan B. I, this is, I have to apply for these. So, um, sorry, excuse me. I, um, I applied for these and, um, you know, God just, <laughs> God completely blew my socks off. Um, I, you know, I ended up getting offers from most of the places that I applied to. And one of them being um, at the Baylor College of Medicine, which is the top medical school in Texas. And yeah. they basically gave me a fellowship where they were basically said, come here and we'll fund you for two summers to work uh, for, for um, 12 weeks per summer. And usually these, these internships last nine to 10 weeks. So to get like two to three extra weeks is huge. And be able to get it for two summers was uh, absurd. So, you know, I followed that path and, um, you know, basically, you know, did that after my sophomore year of college, after my junior year of college and, or no, no, yeah, after my sophomore and junior year of college. Um, and during that last summer of my, you know, during the junior year of college or after, um, I was sort of thinking, you know, what is next for me? And I knew that I wanted to apply to, um, what are called physician scientist programs. So basically they're programs in the U S that train people to become, uh, both a physician and also a scientist to be able to really bridge that, you know, be able to bridge, um, yeah. you know, taking scientific discovery um, and using it to, to address issues that we see in the clinic. And um, these programs are very competitive and I didn't have actually, I didn't have any money to apply for them. I that my junior year of college or after my junior year, which is usually when you do. And I, you also need to take a test called the MCAT, which is like this big deal yeah. medical <laughs> admissions test that, um, I also didn't have enough money to sort of buy the prep materials for. So for me, it, it sort of because finance, because of finances, I realized like, okay, I probably need to take a year or two off of college to work, make some money, take this test, all those sort of things, um, and then apply. And so um, I was sort of looking into jobs, and then I was also looking into actually fellowships because, like, you know, if you have a scholarship that funds you to study another country, you're getting funded to do it. You could do it like basically that's a job, right? And you could use that money again to save it and apply. 
Um, so basically I was looking into sort of research positions after college and I was also looking at scholarships and initially I was going to apply to do a um, Fulbright scholarship in Israel. I was actually looking at specifically the Technion and the Weizmann Institute because they're both really well known for computational biology. That was my field at the time and I really wanted to go and study it um, in Israel actually because they're one of the best countries for that um, outside of the United States. Um, but when I was sort of looking into that, you know, my, uh, my scholarship advisor um, at Chapman, um, she basically said, you know, I know you want to apply for the Fulbright, but I actually think like with your background and with your resume, I actually think you should apply for some more competitive ones to study in the United Kingdom. And first, uh, I, this is going to sound silly, but I didn't really know exactly what the United Kingdom was. Like I always heard of it, but I always thought like there's England, there's Scotland, but I don't, what is the UK? I don't really know. Yeah. Well, I know it's kind of like, you know, the motivation of it. And, and then I looked into these scholarships and they included, um, they included the, the Rhodes Scholarship, um, the Marshall Scholarship, which is basically about just as competitive as the Rhodes, um, the Mitchell Scholarship, which is very similar to both of them, but it's to study in Ireland, um, and then the Gates Cambridge Scholarship, which is very similar to all of them, but you're studying specifically at the University of Cambridge, um, and it was a bit scary for me because Chapman had never had a uh, finalist for any of these scholarships, let alone someone who won it, so again, back to that path of like, you know, God, you're calling me down this path, maybe, but like, this is very unlikely, you know, I just don't know if I'm the guy for these things, you know, um, you know, especially because a lot of kids that win it, you know, end up, you know, coming from, you know, amazing schools, you know, and have impeccable resumes, and I was just like, yeah, I just don't know if I'm on that level, you know, um, and, but, you know, I, I don't know, I think because of wrestling, I'm very um, binary with my decisions. Either I go full force with it, and it's like, you know, I'm applying, and I'm going to, I'm going to apply to win, or it's like, I, don't even touch it. And, you know, I, I you know, figure out something else to do with my time. And it took me a couple of weeks basically during that summer to figure out, you know, okay, do I, you know, which direction do I go on this? And I ended up actually, um, I had the opportunity to get connected actually with a former Rhodes Scholar um, who basically was elected from another small college in the United States that wasn't a super crazy Ivy League. And I reached out to him on LinkedIn and talked to him and got his input. And basically he, after sort of hear my background and story, he thought that I should apply. And I was like, okay, well, this guy who wanted things to apply, I should probably do it. So, um, you know, I basically then geared up and sort of applied, decided to apply for all these things. And basically what ended up happening in the end is um, the Israel Fulbright Scholarship, which was sort of my backup at this point, actually fell through because the Israel, uh, the professor I was talking with um, was a bit flaky and basically it was too late to find someone else to apply for with yeah, so yeah. sort of plan b was out the window um and now i'm only applying for these crazy scholarships and and putting the job applications off right um and then um you know i actually get selected as a finalist for the Rhodes, mitchell and marshall uh wow. which is huge again these are all chapman first and i was like okay this is crazy this is happening um but what happens is Rhodes and mitchell they interview on the same weekend and i can only choose one and uh, again, so <laughs> my background is in statistics, but you know, sometimes you don't take your own advice and use your own knowledge <laughs> to make proper decisions. And so um, to give some context, being the Rhodes finalist is a huge honor, but only 14% of people that interview get selected. Mm-hmm. Uh, basically there are 14 to 15 finalists per district. There are 16 districts in the US and only two from each district get selected. Um, and the Mitchell Scholarship, they interview about 20 people and they select 12 scholars. So you're looking at a probability of 14% versus 60%. And I did this whole fleshed out calculation of like, what is a safer choice than the Mitchell was? But I still took the rose because I was like, that was, that's just what I, what I wanted. So again, um, I don't know. I actually, and again, I'm thankful I took that decision. I guess it's just knowing when to break the rules, right? And I, I ultimately, it was God that gave me the confidence of like, 
don't know. I just felt at the time that's where, that's where he wanted to lead me. And it was a, it was a big risk, but I feel like, you know, taking a risk to pursue your dreams is better than sort of settling for what you know is second best in your heart. So um, basically at that point, there was only Rhodes and Marshall left. Um, I interviewed for the Marshall two days before I, I, or three days, two or three days before I interviewed for the Rhodes. Um, basically interview for the Marshall and a day or two later, I found out that I got waitlisted for it. So there was no guarantee going into the Rhodes that I had anything going on. And a lot of people that actually win the Rhodes were also selected as Marshall scholars. So I was like, shoot, if I didn't interview well for that, I don't know what's going to happen with the Rhodes. Um, and then I interviewed for the Rhodes and long story short, like, uh, I just felt like, like God just gave me complete favor. I absolutely was able to just have the opportunity to tell my story. It was also one of the most fun weekends of my life, which was actually a surprise because a lot of people I was interviewing with were like completely stressed out. And I was just like, at, at that point, I had accepted that I actually wasn't going to win it. So I was like, you know, I'm going to have fun, man. Like, if I'm not going to win it, I might as well enjoy this weekend. I'll never have an opportunity to interview for this scholarship again. My will just have fun. And then, you know, Saturday, my name ends up being the first one that's called out of the two. And I'm like, in awe um you know I'm still in awe because again I um you know it's just it, it's only by God's hand that I was able to get something like that um but yeah you know I, I it's a cool story to tell because I again I I think uh you know historically God has always sort of singled things down for me and, and made me have to step out in faith and trust him and I definitely think the roads was an archetype of of that type of experience mm. Years ago, several friends said, we feel as though you have so much more to say. Would you please create a part two seminar? Families were homeschooling for the elementary years, but they had no long-term vision. So as their children reached the teen years, they were putting them back into school. That is why my seminar, Begin With the End in Mind, was designed to give you the long view for the spiritual and intellectual development of your children. I like to say, if you're not even pregnant yet, this is the seminar for you. Having this information as you begin your journey, as well as when you're coming to the conclusion of it, will save you untold heartache, confusion, and financial stress. When you know where you're headed, it makes the journey so much simpler. Join me on Saturday, April 17th for a live webinar. The replay will be available for two weeks after the live event. You will receive 11 pages of handouts, which if I do say so myself, are worth their weight in gold. Register by April 10th to receive an early bird discount. You don't want to miss this seminar. It will equip you to make it across the finish line with your children. Now back to the show. Yes. So now as you're segueing out of Oxford, uh, back to applying for medical school, what, what is the Lord, what, what are you feeling that the calling on your life is and, and what, what's kind of the future that you're dreaming about? Mm, great question. And I'll say that I think dreaming is actually a really wonderful word because um, that's basically sort of, um, you know, I, it's actually interesting. You know, I, I was, I, I'm, I'm really inspired by the um, story of Joseph uh, in the Bible, largely because, you know, in the end, when um, you know, his brothers are sort of telling him how sorry he is and um, how sorry they are, and, you know, they're just sorry that they did this to him and all that sort of thing, he's so he able to testify, like, guys, don't worry, like, basically, you know, God put me in this position so I could save the lives of many people. Um, and this is a verse that he said, and, and I really feel that's sort of the calling that 
God has on my life. You know, again, I, I my, my path is very unlikely, but, you know, I, I feel like God's put on my heart, um, you know, to, to use whatever opportunities I have to save the lives of many people, to make scientific discoveries that will completely change how we understand disease and, you know, make it so that, you know, my professor who's diagnosed at, you know, um, with a stage four cancer, 37 years old, doesn't have a death sentence, yeah. you know, and things like that. Um, you know, as far as what I'm thinking, you know, moving forward. So, you know, my background is in, you know, computational biology, using computers to understand biology. And, you know, when I came into Oxford, I was basically gun ho on, I'm gonna, you know, basically become like a cancer data scientist and a physician, you know, and I came into Oxford basically to study um, cancer using, you know, these really fancy um, algorithms. Um, just so happens, you know, again, God got to be on a different path than I was expecting. So I came out here wanting to work with a cancer research professor. And so for context, I'm in the Department of Statistics. So we have very limited sort of faculty members that are working on a specific application area. And when I came into Oxford, there are only two people that I could work with still being able to be in my degree um, that were doing cancer stuff. I joined one of them and joined their lab. Uh, and when I landed in Oxford, only a couple of days later, they basically sent me an email saying, I'm really sorry, I'm actually leaving university to sort of um, continue a startup that I, I just founded a couple of years ago. And I'm like, okay, sweet, I'll go and work with the other guy. And, you know, basically over the next couple of months, I was transitioning to that lab. Um, I, you know, leave, you know, the university to go home for winter break, come back in January. Um, so, you know, basically now it's been, you know, two to three months, I haven't been able to do any research, but, you know, okay, now we're going to get started, right? We're going to jump in and get ready to go. Um, I meet with the other supervisor, and he also tells me, yeah, I'm really sorry, but I'm leaving university to take another position at the University of Manchester, and I'm just like, oh, no, I'm actually pretty certain I'm the only Rose scholar this has happened to, and, like, the history of the Rose, I'm just having, like, the most horrible luck with trying to do something, and, and if you sort of followed the logic of sort of, you know, the two supervisors and one left and the other left, now there are no people that I can work with um, that are doing cancer research. And I, um, I want to be quite frank, I felt like I lost my calling. Like, I felt like, you know, this path that God would have had me on, you know, of being able to, you know, do cancer research and study, you know, cancer using this, you know, algorithms and data like this isn't panning out, this isn't what I'm able to work on. And, you know, I ended up joining actually um, an obesity research lab instead, um, you know, because my, my background, I was in college, I studied sort of the relationship between cancer and obesity in children. And um, I was like, okay, well, this is, you know, similar, but, it, you know, I, I wasn't very interested in obesity for its own sake. And I, um, you know, really struggled to find fascination in my work. Again, I really felt like I just lost my calling and I was just like wasting, you know, a year or two of my life. Um, and then, you know, shortly after joining this lab, actually COVID hit and I spent a couple months not being able to do research at all because my housing situation was very unstable um, with my callers sort of shutting down facilities and having to find other accommodation. And um, yeah, so so that was that was 2019 to early 2020. Um, I know for a lot of people, 2020 was really rough. Um, and I will say myself included, not only because of COVID and everything sort of surrounding that, but also because of sort of the, the, the leading up to that, of the instability of my education, my degrees, and, and really my calling. And, um, you know, I didn't really know what to sort of make of it. And, you know, I, I still felt like I was sending me sort of to go in the field of medicine and, you know, I was thinking, okay, well, let me just apply for this and, you know, just try to find fascination in my work and just try to serve God in the day-to-day -day things. And, um, you know, it's interesting because I actually found, um, you know, I kind of came, started to come full circle with my research interests. When I first came into college, 
what I was most fascinated about was molecular biology. And it just so happened that in the lab that I landed in, in Oxford, I was basically being able to study um, molecular biology and fat cells using artificial intelligence. Um, so I came in to work on this project because of the AI stuff, but I started to fall in love again with yeah. the molecular biology. And I actually realized that, um, you know, that textbooks, science textbooks are um, very deceiving in some ways, not because they say necessarily wrong things, but because the way that they're written, they're stating only what we know and they don't highlight what we don't know. Mm-hmm. And I, when I was sort of looking into this molecular biology stuff, I started to realize that sort of my basic assumptions of like, oh, this is how this works, that's how that works. I realized that actually in the scientific community, we actually don't agree on sort of on some of those basics. And there's a lot of contradictory evidence from here and there. And just our models are very um, archaic and and are not well refined. And this fascinated me because I was like, oh my gosh, we don't even understand like the basic stuff of like what's yeah. going on in a cell. And I, um, you know, that just really captured my fascination. And, um, you know, concurrently because of COVID, um, and because of sort of the obesity research that I was doing, um, and also because of some friends that I was living in that really were struggling with some mental health stuff because of the pandemic, I realized that um, that cancer is not the only disease that I can work on that's going to be meaningful to me. You know, that there are a lot of different ways that people suffer um, from, from health maladies and that, um, you know, even if I don't work directly on the disease, if I can work on something that can make an impact for many, if not all diseases, um, that will be, that will be huge. And that also find purpose in that, you know, even if I'm not specifically working on cancer. So um, basically those two combined made me realize that I actually want to go into what's called basic science research. So for some context, um, this is a bit of sort of science jargon. Um, there are two sort of types of research that, that people like to understand um, when thinking of biomedical research. So what, there's what's called translational research where you're studying a disease and trying to look at something that is directly translational to a clinic, translational to a physician, you know, saying, okay, we understand this sort of biomarker that someone could use in the clinic to sort of diagnose a disease, right? So it's directly related to the disease. There's something else called basic research, where it's actually more curiosity driven. It's not mm-hmm. driven by what's applicable to the clinic. It's just driven by what's interesting to you and really just trying to understand the basic fundamentals of what's happening in nature. Yeah. And usually what happens is that the basic research is and ends up being the one that makes usually the more the more system wide impacts because yeah. we discover something crazy that's applicable to everything. Mm-hmm. Like it'll change, you know, um, to, you know a complete change our understanding of biology. So to give an instance, um, last year the Nobel Prize in Chemistry was awarded to uh, Jennifer Dalna and Emmanuel Chapatier um, for their discovery of a bacterial uh, protein called CRISPR which is basically this protein that allows us to edit DNA. Mm-hmm. And um, this protein is out now actually being able to be used in research studies to basically modify the DNA of cells um, in sort of dishes and see how it affects how they work. And so this discovery, this tool is now allowing us to do 
things like uh, and and completely revolutionize our understanding of of everything you know nearly it's like one of the one of the greatest discoveries that's been made but it's funny because this is just some basically the way that they made the discovery was just randomly studying some of this little bacterial protein and just understanding like how this bacteria like survives viral invasions and again that's not directly re related to disease like if i was to say how to cure cancer i wouldn't say oh go look at this funny bacteria um but <laughs> it just so happens that that's what led to this discovery and so um, you know, I have sort of realized that, that sort of level of work, I, I, I think that's what I've really been sort of searching for. And also because I, um, I think that it all, I just happen to really like sort of abstract concepts and basic research is usually very abstract, very removed. And um, I really just sort of like, you know, solving puzzles and that sort of thing. So I think it falls in line with sort of exactly what I want to do. And specifically, um, you know, sort of specific ideas for the research. Um, you know, my background is is in music, as I kind of talked about in the beginning. So I want to be a musician my entire life. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I sort of took a different trajectory, but music is still a huge part of my life. And um, basically, when we study cells, um, you know, we we study, and, and specifically with the, the current technologies we have to study cells, usually what we do is that we break apart a cell and then we sort of count the number of a specific molecule in it and sort of compare different cells with different numbers of molecules to see how they're different. Um, however, these molecules are sort of dynamically changing in number and in, in sort of diversity um, in a continuous state, you know? So basically when we break apart a cell, you know, uh, five or six seconds, it's going to be sort of have a different profile, five seconds, two seconds from that. And basically, we don't have technologies that allow us to study cells continuously, where we continuously monitor, like you continuously monitor, like your blood pressure or your heart mm -hmm. rate. We don't have, we can't take the heart rate of a cell. You know, mm -hmm. we don't have the technology to do that. And, you know, given my statistics background, and also sort of this like knack for like tinkering and, and this interest in sort of engineering and physics. Um, basically what I'm thinking of doing the next stage of my training is I really want to develop technologies that can help us listen to the music of, of a cell, mm. listening to mm. light speed and, and do it in a way that um, actually will allow us to basically compare different types of cells and compare sort of those like molecular oscillations over time. Yeah. Um, and because um, of, I think just, sort of the state of the world right now. I'm, I'm, I'm very, very passionate about um, mental health and sort of contributing to that specific disease, at least in the next yeah. stage of my training. And so um, I'm really interested in doing this in the context of neuroscience. And I think in neuroscience, it's super interesting uh, context to apply this because we know that that the brain has waves. The brain has its own oscillations and movements. Yeah. But, but it's, it's sort of, we understand this from a large scale perspective, but we don't know how do individual cells and their own individual sort of beats and oscillations uh -huh. coordinate to those larger scale oscillations? So basically I'm trying to break apart the orchestra of the brain. Um, oh, I love it. Develop technologies to do that. So it's a bit edgy and a bit, um, a bit creative, creative but, but I, don't, I don't think, uh, I think that's how science, like how, how the most progress can be made is that people take big risks and are unafraid to go in new directions and look at, so, you know, tackle the same problems in a new way, so. Yes. Oh, Vidal, I love this. So how would you say that homeschool kind of launched you um, into thinking outside the box? You know, what, what impact did that year of homeschooling, like if you had just graduated from the public school versus instead what you did, sure. how did that change you? Well, I think the, I mean, I think the very simple way it changed me is that in public school, I felt like I was in a box my entire time, even if I didn't, um, 
necessarily notice it. Like there were just these artificial boundaries in terms of what I was able to learn, what I was able to study. Um, and, and homeschooling, I, I mean, I think I really noticed that I was in the box in public high school when I started homeschooling because I was like, oh, shoot, like I can now study whatever the heck I want. There isn't a box in homeschooling. Yeah. There isn't a prescription. I think, honestly, um, you know, I think about this a lot because, you know, with public schools, there's sort of this assumption that every person needs the same path, needs the same, yeah. needs the same, has the same needs. And, um, you know, given my experience in homeschooling and also just knowing sort of the, the diversity of people and personalities, I strongly disagree with that assumption. I think that, um, you know, we need to have an educational system that is just as flexible and diverse as, as we are. And um, I really think that homeschooling allowed me to have that, um, the axes of sort of flexibility and diversity where I needed it. I think in particular with, um, you know, not only the humanities where I was able to finally like fall in love with reading and fall in love with books that I enjoy, but also again with the sciences, you know, being able to get certified as a personal trainer, you know, for a high school course and being able to, um, you know, being able to take a, a, a statistics book, not even take a class, just, just read through a book just for fun. And, and I think the other thing too is like, um, you know, beyond sort of that independence, um, you know, I, I think home, well, actually, yeah, I guess that would be that independence. And to hit on, yeah, to hit on the independence point a little bit more, um, you know, something that I do remember distinctively in high school was that, at least my, my last senior year when I was homeschooling, was that for my statistics course, I was, um, sort of teaching myself everything and actually proctoring my own tests. Yes. So yeah. Basically yeah. at the end, they had these tests and I was like, okay, I'm going to take this test. I'm not going to look at the textbook. I'm just going to write down the question. Let's send these paper, take it on my own. And I sort of had my own honor system. And I think that, um, you know, beyond the independence that is required to do that, like it really instilled this sense of integrity and honesty in me, you know, of like, you know, if I, if I decide and I learned it very quickly, like, you know, if I decide, okay, like I'm going to take this test and just sort of check my answers, like, um, like I'm only hurting myself, you know? Mm -hmm. And I think when you're in the public school system, like, and you're not learning things that you're interested in, like that mantra and that message doesn't really cut through as clearly, but when you're homeschooled and you're literally just doing this, cause like, you know, you're interested in it. Um, and you realize that, you know, the, the way you score on this test is, is not going to, you know, completely destroy your educational career. Um, it really like instills like, okay, I, yeah, I should be honest. I should have integrity in these things because, um, you know, because like, I'm, again, I'm only hurting myself if I don't do this. Right. And I think that's huge because, you know, in, in college, a lot of people who don't, because they don't fall in love with what they're doing, it, they, they take the route of cutting corners with yes. education. Um, you know, and it's really sad. A lot of people, their sort of whole academic career and trajectory, even job trajectory can be destroyed by a really tragic um you know fall in that area and so you know i think that was also huge and i think the other thing too is again like um beyond the independence uh, you know the independence was there because there was sort of initial amount of freedom that was allowed for me as a homeschooler yeah. and i think that um you know that is what it's allowed me in college to sort of follow um the path that I meant was meant to go on sort of on a dime, you know, when, for instance, when my um, professor was diagnosed with cancer, because I was a homeschooler, I wasn't, didn't put myself in a box of like, I need to be a physical therapist and I'm not going to do anything about this. Like it allowed me to respond to the world around me um, yeah. in a way that was flexible and dynamic and in a way that sort of maximized the impact that I could have on the lives of others. And I think that's, um, you know, 
I'm very thankful that I was homeschooled because that's what has allowed me even now, you know, like to, to change my path to go, you know, what? I wanted to be a, you know, AI cancer doctor. Now I want to like be like a, like a data engineer scientist thing. I don't even know what I call myself now, but like I get to, I get to carve my own path, you yes. know, and, yeah. and enter new territories. And I think, you know, um, if you want to, um, if you want to, to, to sort of prepare your kid and prepare your child, prepare your family, make the biggest impact on the world. I think it starts with honing a sense and a love for creative problem solving. And I mm-hmm. think that's really what homeschooling did for me is it made me and allowed me to become a, a creative problem solver. Wow. Vidal, you are just such a joy to talk to because you have owned your own education, which is everything that I teach. When your parents first came to me um, and you have two other brothers and a sister, so they have one still at, well, two kids still at home, right? Your brother has just won a full ride at Stanford. And um, when they first came to me, this was all new to them. And thinking outside the box when your children have been in school and and you've been told what your children need to learn and what they need to do. And the idea of you can do anything. The world is your oyster. You've really example, you know, you, you have lived that out. What I, what I dream for my families is that we don't have school at home, but that we have homeschool which means we can do anything, you know, we can pursue our own interests mm-hmm. under parental guidance. And that's your parents gave you that freedom. Neither of your parents were born in the United States. They love to share that fact and why they're so pri- proud of you children. But, you know, your parents have kind of lived that same dream of thinking outside the box, reinventing the wheel themselves. So they gave you the permission and the go ahead and they cheered for you mm-hmm. and they didn't micromanage you. They really kind of wound you up and let you fly. Yeah, yeah. And I totally agree. And I think, um, you know, to sort of follow that thread, I really think that every child, every child sort of knows the direction that um, in some sense, at a deep, deep, really sense yes. that they're meant to go. And ultimately it's not the child, it's it's God, right? I mean, for me, again, being a Christian, it's God that, that has that that purpose for every single person's life Um, and so I think it's you know our job as educators as parents as teachers to um to make sure that we give our children the freedom and I actually really love the um the sort of thinking about the side of the box and I actually want to extend it to even asking is that does the box even exist is there a box what box because you know ultimately I think um academic sort of the 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 um the barriers that we set around academic disciplines they're they're not real they're cultural um but if you look at um at thinking and thought and you know just anything that you do in the world everything is related to something somehow you know i think i'm i'm starting to realize this now as i'm sort of looking into my pc and i'm like considering you know working with the neuroscientists and like a computer musician um, during my PhD, which is like something that's never been done before. But I'm like, I see the connection between music and between <laughs> yeah. biology. And that I think largely because people haven't drawn that connection is the reason why we lack an understanding of how cells act in real time and how life dances to its own beat. And, you know, I think, um, yeah, you know, the best thing I can uh, encourage, you know, uh, families is just to, t- to take a chance with this because the payoff, you know, could be huge. And, and I think, again, I, um, you know, it's only by the grace of God that, that like I had the opportunity to homeschool and then I, that my, um, 
that my family gave me that opportunity, but it, it's, it's, it was a tremendous honor and a privilege and, you know, something that, that I'm for sure going to do with my kids, you know, and give them that freedom because, um, again, it was, it was a game changer for me. You know, the last thing I sort of want to hit on is that, um, you know, the beauty of homeschooling, again, is that it allows you to follow that passion. And, you know, um, I think you hit on this. Both of my parents were born outside of the U.S. My dad was born in Spain. My mom was born in Mexico. And, you know, something sort of, uh, at least in my culture that's talked about, uh, at least in Spanish culture, is this idea of what's called uh, duende, which is this idea of like soul passion. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's something that my parents strongly believe in. And I I think is the reason why they love the idea of homeschooling, because like and they knew that it would allow us to find that. Um, and I think that... Uh, you know, I, I really think that everyone has that, you know, it's not just the Hispanic community that has soul and passion. Everyone has that in their, in their own right. And I think, um, you know, if we can give people the freedom to pursue that, that, uh, you know, I just think the world is going to be a much better place in a much shorter time. And, um, you know, I, yeah, I just want to encourage families to, again, take that risk because, because, uh, you know, the payoff, the payoff could be huge. The payoff will be huge. You know, if, if yes. it's done right, the payoff will be huge. Yes. Oh, you've been such a blessing, Vidal. Would you be willing to pray for the, for our listeners as they're trying to help their children find their soul passion? Absolutely, absolutely. Holy Father, God, we just um, come before you today, God. I thank you, God, um, for allowing us and Carol to uh, have this conversation, Lord, even though we're thousands of miles away, God, um, Lord, with the sort of technology today, God, we can still have these conversations and um, you know, be able to just think through these things, God. And um, first and foremost, God, we just want to give praise to you, God, for, um, Lord, helping us to, uh, Lord, just find a path, God, that, that allows us to have that freedom, um, Lord, to sort of um, bathe, God, in the glory of your creation um, and what you have before us, Father. And I do, God, just want to particularly lift up, um, Lord, the families, God, right now, um, who may be listening to this, God, um, that you just give them discernment, you give them wisdom, that you would um, just provide them, God, with the community and with the resources that they would need to do um, to, to sort of follow this path. And, and Father, I just pray, God, that, uh, Lord, we would realize that, um, Lord, while freedom initially uh, can seem scary, God, the independence that comes from freedom, um, Lord, is huge, God, and, and that is worth, God, uh, taking that risk and moving forward, God, that independence, God, to, to, to carve the path, God, that um, that you would have each of us to carve so that we can make an impact for your kingdom. And so we thank you, Father. We love you. We praise you. We lift this all to your name. Mm, amen. Thank you, Vidal. What a joy. And thank you to our listeners for joining me on the Homeschool Made Simple podcast. If you liked what you heard in this episode, I'd appreciate a rating and a review on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would help too. Visit my website, caroljoyside.com to subscribe to our weekly email and receive exclusive discounts in my online store where seminars and interviews are available. Be sure to tune in next week for my next episode where I help you homeschool simply, inexpensively, and enjoyably. Blessings. <laughs>